Hi and warm welcome everyone to episode number 38 of Sustainability Explored, the first episode of season 4. It's a podcast where I unfold and explore with the help of invited guests from across the world how sustainability practices are integrated into business operations in various industries. In previous episodes, throughout the first three seasons, I covered fashion, flowers, bed sheets made of lyocell material, uh, cannabis, tourism, finance and impact investment, urbanism and cities, uh, business models, buildings, economy, filming, and even a social network for sustainability professionals. All these areas were covered through the prism of sustainability well-being, health, environmental psychology, and our sustainability as individuals is another aspect of a bigger picture that I include in my personal understanding of sustainability, where environmental, social, and economic factors inevitably influence the quality of human life. The world recently is full of very bad news. Pandemics, job losses, racism, xenophobia, riots, protests, abuse of power and police violence. People are becoming increasingly suspicious of each other. Intolerance and disrespect grow. I would like to express my support to everyone who is standing for justice, civil rights, equality and respect, and fights idiocy and medieval darkness on a daily basis, now and always, to keep this world a livable place. I'm given a minute of silence to say from my little place, black lives matter and every life matters. This episode's focus is green and sustainable buildings in the US and on a very practical note, sustainable, cozy and healthy workplace, kind of home office place, since we're working from home now. I invited Julia Craighill, sustainability expert committed to helping organizations build value through green strategies. Julia is in fact a colleague of Tom Abbott, with whom we recorded an episode called Sustainable Buildings with Tom Abbott, after which Julia kindly offered to present her views from, so so to say, over the pond from the US. As one of the first certified BREEAM USA in-use assessors in the United States, Julia is highly experienced in architecture, construction, real estate, strategic planning, assessments, and sustainability, of course. Now she is also an owner of Inside Consultancy. Join us on this journey through the history of green and sustainable buildings in the U.S. and a strategy for its future transformation.
Hi, Julia. Thanks so much for joining me today at Sustainability Explored. A couple of weeks ago, we had a recording with Tom Abbott about sustainable buildings. And I wanted to expand this topic a little bit further and to have your um, ideas, your vision about how this sustainability in buildings works today in the US. So before we kick of our super amazing conversation today. Would you please like to walk me through your sustainability journey and your career a little bit? Absolutely. I think when I think about how I got into sustainability, I think it starts with how I was raised. I, I was really raised around a family that, that valued nature and was out in nature and very respectful of nature. So that's kind of like, the origin story way back. Um, but more immediately, um, I started, I've been in the building industry for decades. Um, my first decade, I was an architect, so I'm a licensed architect. Um, second decade, I actually was a uh, construction manager um, for commercial construction. And I would say it was during that time that I really um, saw the impact of construction on the environment. And, you know, here I was basically instituting all of this, and I thought, this is, this is, is not good. Um, that was sort of in the back of my mind. And then in around 1999, I was the construction manager, the project manager on a project for a nursing home. And this nursing home was uh, on a, a seven acre, fully wooded, beautiful site. And in order to level the site so we could build the nursing home and to direct all the water to a storm retention pond at the bottom of the slope, we probably, uh, cut down six acres of trees and leveled it. So it was just this big dirt pile, leveled it. And my late husband was also an architect and he came out on site and I was very proud because doing earthwork is a good way to lose a lot of money. And we had been very efficient and we had done a great job and gotten everything right. And he came out and said, wow, there's just gotta be a better way. And of course, this was what the plans and the regulations um, had told us to do as the, as the construction company. And I sort of took offense because here I was kind of proud of what we had done, but I reflected back on that and, and I really think that informed how I moved forward. So um, about eight years after that, I, I really got into sustainability. Um, because I was an architect and a woman, I was very different than everybody that I was working with. And I mean, this is the 90s, mid 90s to mid 2000s. And the head of construction would always, if something was kind of odd, or he wanted a completely different perspective, he'd say, well, let's ask Julia. And so there was this thing called LEED, and it had come across his desk. So this is January 2001, that this new thing was going to be um, introduced, and it was some kind of green rating system. And I had actually built a very 
green building right before doing that nursing home, um, mainly because as the architects got to know me, they would tell the client, we'll do this, but only if Julia builds it. And so this was a very green building um, very early. And so it was my first introduction to green building. And, you know, I'm just executing plans. And it was very challenging. This was 1998 in finding sourcing arsenic-free lumber. We didn't have the internet. Um, it was just calling up all the various lumber companies and just persistence. Anyhow, so doing that project had left me with so many questions. You know, how do you choose what your materials are going to be, or what even your foundation system is, and what's right, what's wrong? So he showed me this thing and I thought, well, this sounds ridiculous. It's like some kind of rating system. What's that? Um, do they really even know what they're talking about? But fortunately, an article in the Washington Post, the architecture critic, came out like two days after this was passed by my desk. And it was about the Chesapeake Bay Foundation building, which had been a pilot project for LEED. It's in Maryland, on the Chesapeake Bay, in our region. And this article talked about LEED and how this was a LEED platinum and all the amazing, fantastic things. Even to this day, it's a great building. And I read that and I was like, I guess it's something. So I signed up. So that's how I got into doing LEED. So it was a very early adopter of that. I tend to be an early adopter. That's pretty much how I got into that's part of my sustainability journey. Um, after taking that and becoming, becoming a lead AP, I continued building and then I created the position of director of sustainability for this development construction firm that I worked for and did that for two years. Um, and that was a very interesting experience. And then I left because I was reverse commuting far distances to go to this company and, um, and joined a consulting company, uh, Stephen Winter Associates. I does building performance consulting. And I was there for four years and decided to go out on my own and just sort of be able to work on what I want to work on. So you opened your own consultancy? My own consultancy, it's called Insight Consulting. And I did another pivot. I seem to do a lot of pivots um, in that what I do now is provide sustainability strategy and execution plans um, for companies of all sorts. Um, I focus on operations, actually, those things that a company um, a business owner or a property manager does in their everyday um, operations. And this was a big pivot for me, but I really believe that we can't build our way out of our problems. We have many more buildings that exist than will be built, and we need to look at those and figure out a way to make them greener. And this doesn't mean like huge renovations or adaptations. So it's very much the less sexy cousin to new construction. 
You know, your story of how you started uh, as an architect and then you saw that something is going completely wrong in the building industry way before LEED reminded me of my first job in the events, mass events like uh, opening of the um, Olympics or integrations of the stadiums. And I was there, it's like a drug. You, you receive so much emotion. You work with so many people. You cannot leave the industry because you were you know, this light in your eyes. And yet at some point I started to notice, well, very early on I started to notice that all these costumes, the props, everything is never gonna be recycled. Huge amounts of money wasted in the fireworks. And I was like, I cannot contribute to that. And I was still studying to, to become an environmentalist. Then I moved to sustainability, so in a broader sense. But I still remember that feeling like, I want to do this job. I love this job, but I cannot. I cannot continue like that. Uh, LEED, so LEED certification, is it, does it mean it's only 20 years old? Right, 2001. Yes, yeah. yes. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that because it was a full day workshop and we're in this uh, auditorium and two people that I now know very well are presenting. And one thing, you know, it's, it was just, it kind of blew my mind. It, start, it was like, yes, considering stormwater is part of green building, that was radical to me at the time. And I loved LEED because there were so many questions that I had from when I built this green building and it answered some and cleverly avoided many of the others. Uh, we, we are now starting to do life cycle analysis of building materials and that's really the questioning that I was having, having was how do you at the beginning choose what materials to use but only now are we beginning to get enough data. And so LEED avoided that completely. It just said, procure, you know, things that have recycled content, um, lumber that's sustainably harvested, and, and focus on things that are near to you. And I thought that was very clever how they avoided some of the really difficult issues, which I think was good. We really want this to be for the top 25% of the buildings built, and we want it to be entirely voluntary. So it's a market-driven change. And I thought, well, that will never happen. And I'm glad that was proved wrong, although I do think that a lot of the adoption of the system is because it was brought into the regulatory framework. Right. And you know, that, that made it more familiar to people. When the person receives the LEED certificate, so you become a certified LEED assessor, for how long does it work? For how long is it valid? Right, you, you have to take learning units um, and then you show that you've done these learning units and some of them can be actually education, sort of online education things that US Green Building Council has. Um, and then you renew your, your certification every three years. Mm -hmm. Okay, three years. And for the building that is assessed and approved, for how long the building is considered green if it receives the certificate, the label, so to say? So that's very interesting. People can really keep that plaque up forever. And I think that there are a lot of new building owners 
that feel as though we got this new construction certification and therefore we're fine. And I think that's another reason why I'm focusing on existing buildings because it isn't fine. You can have a lead platinum building that's not well run and consumes just as much energy, water, resources as a non-lead building. So the life of a building continues after that, that uh, initial certification, if you get it when it's first built. I think that we need to change that and have the new construction very clearly be only for a short amount of time to really promote people looking at now certifying the existing building. Mm -hmm. And who usually orders the certification? It's really the client's decision. Um, and that's going to be what kind of drivers, is it a part of a regulation? Is it part of a building code? Or is it part of an incentive program? Uh, quite a few jurisdictions incentivize greener buildings. Or what we're seeing more and more is that investors are beginning to really understand that sustainability and risk management go hand in hand. That buildings that are well considered when they're built are more sustainable and that's a better investment all around. LEED is very prevalent in the US. I'm really recognizing that ladder driver of investors, particularly for new construction, more with BREAM, which is new to the US, but uh, European investors in particular are, are looking for that certification. What is the difference, if maybe you can share a little bit, what's the difference between LEED and BRIAM? So I knew that LEED is in the US, BRIAM is in the UK, but how do they overlap maybe? So it, it's an interesting question. Um, BRIAM is the original green building rating system. It's 10 years older than LEED. And I think the, the people at the US Green Building Council, uh, when they got together and said, we need to devise a rating system, I think they looked at BRIAM quite closely. And while I don't know what BRIAM was like then, I think there were quite a few parallels. Um, right off the bat, one difference is that BRIAM is science-based, and while there is input from stakeholders, it's the decision of BRIAM as to whether a credit should be part of the system and what those metrics should be. Whereas LEED has always been consensus-based. It's always been a gathering of practitioners in the building industry and vendors and deciding what is right for the market at that time. So that's a little a distinction, but it's, it's an important distinction. BRIAM is more prevalent in the UK, lead more in, uh, in the UK and, and Europe. There are open markets, as it were, like China and India and others like that, where I think both of them are uh, starting to make an incursion. Um, I feel, and what attracted me to BRIAM was that it's more, in my mind, pragmatic. And I tend to be very pragmatic. Um, 
Briam is an outgrowth of Brie. So Brie is the building research establishment in the UK. And Briam is the building research establishment environmental assessment method. Brie, the parent company, is an outgrowth of the fire office in London, um, which was established 100 years ago. So this is a really old organization that was established to mitigate risk and still operates like that. And so Briam looks a lot at risk, what you're doing regarding risk management. Um, are you looking at hazards and how are you um, adapting to those? So I like that. Also, when it looks at materials, it looks at them really from a lot of the point of view of, are they robust? Are they going to be around for a long period of time? And what are you doing to make sure that they remain um, in good condition? So I think looking at risk, I think it uh, initially looked more at health and well-being than lead, but that's changing. And they certainly look at them slightly differently. Yeah, I would say those are the two big ones for me. Right. In our pre-conversation, you mentioned you were a Briam in-use assessor. What does this in-use stand for? Right. Uh, so both Briam and LEAD have different certifications for the entire life cycle of a building. So they both have certifications for infrastructure. Um, they both have certifications for the community, if it's a larger community that you can certify. For LEED, that's for neighborhoods. For BRIAM, it's, it's uh, communities, I believe. Um, they both have one for new construction, which is called new construction. And they both have a rating system for existing buildings. And so for LEED, that's existing buildings, operations, and maintenance. And for BRIAM, it's called in use. So, so that's what Briam in use is. Now, as we are talking, I'm thinking, I'm questioning myself, if I have myself ever been to a real green building, I think certainly not in Ukraine, that's almost 100% certainty, maybe in Berlin, PWC building, but I have to, you know, I have to be creative to think, what is exactly a green building? Maybe you can tell me what is this particular set of magical, um, I don't know, magical skills of the building, magical uh, initiatives altogether in the building that make it green. Maybe you can give this recent example of yours uh, that you mentioned in our uh, exchange, FIPS uh, Center, right? Tell me everything. So, yes, what makes a building green? It's very interesting, very open-ended uh, question. You could go on quite a bit um, <laughs> about that, but, but I won't. I won't bore you with all of that. But I would like to talk about the building that I just recently was the assessor on because if there is a building that is the definition of green, it probably comes very close. And I would say that that is because it went for multiple certifications. Um, it has throughout its sort of lifespan. And that really means it covered a whole lot of bases. So 
It's called um, the FIPS Center for Sustainable Landscapes. FIPS is a conservatory in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, it's quite old. It's got this gorgeous old glass conservatory under which they have all sorts of beautiful plants and, and different spaces that have different themes. They're very creative. Um, it's on sort of the edge of a very, very steep, almost cliff-like slope. Um, and they have added onto it moving down that slope. And in 2012, they completed a project called the Center for Sustainable Landscapes, which is really met as, as an educational and leadership institution educating and showing how to have landscapes that are very sustainable. But they decided that you really want to approach this holistically. So they went for something called the Living Building Challenge certification. And it was a pilot of that program. Living Building Challenge is kind of like I describe it as lead on steroids. There aren't degrees of achievement. You either do it or you don't. And it has pedals. Uh, such as energy and water, and you have to have net zero water in order to qualify, or net zero energy to qualify. And in its materials um, pedal is particularly challenging because there's a set, at that time it was 15, I believe it's more now, of chemicals that cannot be present in any of the materials in your building toxic chemicals and that's a gargantuan task i did help out on a living building challenge uh building at the same time and on the materials pedal and it's it's very difficult to go down deeply into a supply chain if you think about a piece of hardware a doorknob you know that has 20, 30 parts sourced from globally. Wow. So it's a very difficult challenge. They did at that time. They did allow you to, if you can't source um, everything completely, you can um, write a letter to that manufacturer and demonstrate that you've tried and you encourage them not to have these chemicals in their products. So they got that certification which is a Herculean tech task. They also got lead platinum. And then, and this is, the chronology may not be right, they also went for sites certification, which is like lead, but for the site. They went for net zero energy, which you have to demonstrate for that certification that over a period of time, you've been net zero. And they went for others, also, which I can't recall right now, they were sort of operating this building for seven years and in 2019 said, well, we should now, um, oh, well, excuse me, they went for well certification. It's an alphabet soup. It's an alphabet <laughs> soup uh, of certifications. Well um, looks into the health aspects of the building that promote health and well-being for the occupants. 
And they're always a leader. They were a very early in the living building challenge. They decided to do that very early and well, very early in um, sites. And they actually were going for well version two certification in 2019 when they also initiated going for BREAM. And so they, they decided that they liked BREAM. They also liked the fact that BREAM would give them international exposure. And as a facility that is really trying to broaden its reach more globally, they liked that part of BREAM. So they decided to go for BREAM and use certification. And I think it was, it was quite challenging. They hired a local consultant to help them, which was great. It's, it's a lot of work. You've got to assemble a lot of documentation to demonstrate that you meet the criteria. And, and it was doubly challenging because this was a project built to living building challenge um, and to lead standards. And now you're bringing in a whole nother set of criteria and way of thinking that it was developed in the UK by Briam. So it was an interesting exercise, but we did uh, prevail. And in January, they got uh, outstanding with the highest level of certification for, for Briam and use. So it's quite a remarkable building. And I'm so glad they're continuing their journey, like I've discussed before, which I really believe uh, we need to do. Right. Uh, here is the unusual, in a way, question. With the start of the lockdown and unfolding pandemic globally, those fortunate of us who kept our jobs and can work from home, uh, home office becomes a thing. Uh, what, with all your knowledge and these years of experience, what would you suggest to people staying home? How to, of course, not in, you know, certification-wise, uh, I will not certify my apartment, but, you know, with, with this knowledge in mind, what pieces of advice you could share to make the, the home office more healthier, I think, healthier and more sustainable? Yes. Well, I work from home and have since I started my own business. And I agree with you. It's a luxury that we don't have to be a frontline worker, which is the terminology we use here in the U.S., um, you know, which includes, includes people working at grocery stores, in the medical profession, and uh, police. You know, these are the people really in the line of fire. We're very fortunate that we can work from home. But to that, it's been so amusing to see the setups that so many people do. Uh, I actually love now that you can, you get these peeks into celebrities' homes and these newscasters uh, that are showing their setup, which is like the dining room table with a box and their laptop on it so that they can be seen. And uh, the most uncomfortable seating, I'm just like, oh my goodness, I couldn't quite imagine. I've created quite a nice um, nest here for myself. And some of the things I've done, you can see we're on a Zoom call, so we are actually looking at each other, which is lovely, that I have plants. It's good for air. It's just nice to see. And I think that one pointer that 
I read, and this was from an, an organizer, uh, sort of a home office business decluttering organizer. She has a lots of advice. Um, one of which is make your workspace beautiful so that when you go into it, it's inviting. And I've worked to do that successfully and not so successfully, but it does make a difference to me. The next thing, and you can see this also, is I have a lot of natural light. I actually have a window here and two windows behind me, and it's not great for web calls because it makes me look like I'm in a dungeon when I'm so backlit, but it's wonderful for working to have this sort of dispersed light on my work surface. So I think light, light for me is so important um, to have a, a light filled space and to have a window that you can look out and stay connected to nature and to the weather and to what's going on. Um, and so I guess the last thing coming back to nature is that maybe you can't or don't want to have a lot of plants around, but I think having, and this is an aspect called biophilia, which is um, another movement in the green building space to create a better connection to nature between, uh, for the occupants of a space. Um, and yes, it's windows that you can look at. Yes, it's plants, but it's also patterns and sounds and other things that are like nature or are derived from nature that really uh, studies have shown can be really energizing and, and increase the health of people near to those. But what do you mean with this, um, I want to say biomimicry? Uh, is it the objects outside your window or recreation of something inside your house? So biomimicry is different than biophilia. Biophilia is creating a connection to nature. Um, another, another sort of system along those lines is called forest bathing. And that's literally where you go out into a forest. Biophilia is more nuanced in that that connection can be actually inanimate things that you also have in your space. And I'm not explaining it very well, but patterns, or sounds or things like that are, you know, part of the design of the space, as well as literally being connected to nature right. and having spaces that people can go to outdoors. Right. Could you suggest one book uh, to read about the things you mentioned, you know, the health, the well-being of the environment indoors? Well, Tom suggested that we all go read uh, the Briam uh, <laughs> the Brienne book and guidelines. Oh, no, 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 no. It, it's a wonderful resource. It's, uh, it's not light reading, but it, that's, that's actually a great, a great sort of segue because uh, like Tom and we know each other, I'm a big believer in certifications. I learned about green building reading the lead reference guide. Um, it's a beautifully written book that says what you should do and why it's important. 
I haven't looked at a lead reference guide recently, but it was a, a wonderful education for me. Uh, Briam's technical manual, free to download on the Briam site, uh, is also very good in terms of what, what are things that you should do and why do you want to do it. So I said no, because it's not exactly light reading, um, but they're wonderful guides created by smart people that think about this a lot. And it, it's really why I like certifications. They're great roadmaps that you can follow and just trust that they've thought about this hard and they're giving you good advice. So that, that certainly is one. Um, I'd have to get back to you and maybe you can put it in the notes um, or afterwards. I'll get back to you on some books and resources on biophilia. Mm -hmm. that would be good. I can't come off the top of my head. I can't think of them, but I, I know some good resources. We will do that. And probably one last question as we are approaching the end of our wonderful interview. Which piece of advice you would share with the listeners of Sustainability Export? Well, I think the piece of advice, interesting, if it's particular to sustainability, um, my advice would be to really think about, you know, I've always been in business, to really think about the business case carefully, because that is always the discussion that one has. It's, it's always like, yeah, but why should I do that? I mean, it, it costs money. And I think that the benefit of sustainability is far more nuanced than most people talk about. So most people talk about it as efficiency. If I increase the energy efficiency, I'll save money. If you can even save money, if you manage your waste uh, better. Yes, that's a very tangible, you can see those numbers. Um, very clearly. But the, the real value that you need to understand is um, the effect on people. So when you as a company uh, do things that are green, there are studies that show that it helps to attract talent to your company, it, it helps to retain them, and it increases their productivity. Um, it also attracts clients, investors, and other stakeholders, and just builds trust in your brand. These things are harder to measure, but far more valuable. So that's my advice to anyone who's looking to green whatever they can or get into the business. I think it's, this advice is applied to so many walks and sides of life, really. But the fact is that this financial aspect is literally the only button, for example, I could push in my professional life. You will save this much and look how much I calculated you will save over this period of time. And that works. But when you say, hey, you will retain the talent, hey, 70% of uh, young generation who are now entering the workforce look into the reputation of the brand, they will they will never come work for you, you know. That's what you're doing when you're not investing in sustainability, be it um, the green buildings or anything else. But yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's a two-pronged approach. One is there are increasingly very good reputable studies that are quantifying this value. So look to those and get those numbers. The other is just stories. Um, I also certify businesses to a proprietary green business certification for my county. And early on, probably 2014, I was talking to an accounting firm that did a wonderful job. Accountants are great at doing certifications. And I said, why as an accounting firm was this important for you? And she said, oh, because we've measured it, their accountants, and it has absolutely helped us to attract and retain talent. So that was their value proposition, not the money they save, the talent. It doesn't surprise me that the accountants are the information keepers. These are the ones that you know deal with money. They measure everything. They know all the bills for water, electricity, uh, salaries, and everything. These are the go-to people. When I'm doing yes. the environmental and social assessments of the enterprises and projects, the accountants are where I go, really. I absolutely agree. It, I learned something new every day, but I certainly learned on that one. <laughs> Julia, thanks so much for this uh, wonderful uh, conversation that we just had on buildings and green stuff and you know home offices and so on. It's a real pleasure talking to you. Let's keep in touch and I will get back to you on the, um, the book recommendation. Will do. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. There is one correction to the answer about the validity of individual LEED certificate. It's two years. Julia wanted me to pass this correction to all of you. An individual must report a certain number of hours of professional development activities every two years to maintain their credential. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you still have any questions, don't hesitate to let me or Julia know. Please reach out to either of us on LinkedIn. A um, couple of resources that Julia shared with me after the episode, as promised, and I'd like to pass them on to you, related to biophilia or design with better connection to nature, are the following. To start with, check out Bill Browning's work. Bill Browning of uh, Terrapin Bright Green has been a long-time sustainability leader. About 10 years ago, he started to focus on biophilia, and now he's also getting into bio-inspired innovation, or biomimicry. His report, 14 Patterns on Biophilic Design, of Biophilic Design, excuse me, is one of the most authoritative on the subject. And his website has many more resources as well. So it's Bill Browning of Terrapin Bright Green. The father of biophilia is ascribed to Edward O. Wilson, and his book, named simply Biophilia, is a classic. You can find it anywhere on the web. If you like the podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing um, with anyone who might be interested in the subject, leaving a review or rating on the platform you're listening on. I cordially invite you to check our Podchaser page and leave a review there. I reply each and every one personally. 
The podcast is for its listeners. By taking your time to leave a review, you help more people interested in practical aspects of sustainability to discover it. I would also like to invite you to check some other related episodes out, such as the one that was mentioned a couple of times today, um, called Sustainable Buildings with Tom Abbott, uh, or Well-Being, Health and Environmental Psychology with Lee Chambers from Essentialize. And finally, one of my favorite um, episodes, uh, the, the one that offers a view over where economy uh, will go in the future and how it's changing today, called Circular Economy Challenges and Systemic Change with Cleona Howie Del Rio from Climate Kick. Thank you for listening, for being here with us today, and until next time, next Thursday. Take care, stay tuned, stay healthy and safe. Bye-bye.